Well, it's always good to be with you guys. It, uh, it's always a pleasure to be in the house of God. It's always a pleasure to be able to worship with you guys. If for nothing else, I get a couple of hours away from the chaos of everything going on in the world. I can just be here. I can be here with my church family, and I can focus on worshiping God. And that is truly something that is a blessing. Because right now, the world is in a bit of a chaos, isn't it? If we're honest with ourselves, right now we have a new variant of COVID sweeping across the world, accounting for over 80% of the cases right now in Florida. That controversial vaccine I get asked about quite frequently. Though they do seem to have helped and decreased the severity of COVID, they have seemingly fallen short of that 90% immunity that they told us about. In fact, a study now out of Israel says maybe it's only 60%. On top of that, we have pastors getting thrown in jail for having church services during the pandemic. In Canada, we have 45 churches that have been vandalized in the last 60 days, including 17 churches burned down to the ground. The fault lines of the evangelical world have been exposed as we have significant battles and polarization occurring in the realm of critical theory or race relations or gender roles and the sufficiency of scripture to deal with social issues. And yet, here we are, right? As the song says, clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. You know what though, tonight, I'm here to encourage you. I'm here to encourage you in a time where the world once again wants us to panic. Tonight, I want us to refocus our attention. I'm here to refocus our attention in a time where we are seemingly being hit in every direction. And tonight, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to excel still more in a time where others are telling us to pump the brakes. You see, there's this idea that the world has come up with called safe spaces, right? People are wanting a safe space, whether it be on college campuses, whether it be in their workplace, whether it be in the military even now. There's these times where they just need a place where they can be guaranteed safety and be left alone. Well, if you've come to hear me say that there's a safe place for Christianity, you're gonna be disappointed because I'm gonna tell you there is no such thing as a safe place for us. Coming to church has always been filled with risk. We have never been promised physical safety here on earth by God. In fact, Jesus seems to warn the disciples of just the opposite. John 15, Jesus says, they hated me, they're going to hate you. Trouble is coming. You're going to be dragged out of synagogues. Go to Revelation 2. Revelation 2, 9. To the church of Smyrna, he writes this. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you in prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. That doesn't sound 
like a safe space being promised by God. In fact, we look at the life of Paul, we'll see there are no safe spaces. Go to 2 Corinthians 11. Second Corinthians 11, Paul's going to just take a, take a second, just a little second here to talk about this. He says, I speak in foolishness, in verse 21, but then jump down to verse 23. He says, are they servants of God? I speak as if insane, I am more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in dangers of death. And then he goes down the list. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern from all the churches. Who is weak without me being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Paul was never given a safe space. Paul was never feeling like he had some safety here on earth from danger. In fact, he even tells Timothy, go to 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3, verse 10, it says this. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, and then persecutions, sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Let me read that again. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Paul does not promise a safe space. In fact, Paul says just the opposite. If you want to be in Christ, you're going to face trials, you're going to face persecutions, you're going to face danger. Church history has, been, has never been, rather, without persecution in some form, in some place of the church. The gospel treasure that we have today, the gospel treasure that has been guarded for us, kept for us, given to us, has always been through the bloodied hands of martyrs throughout the past 2,000 years. Plainly, I don't know what the future holds, but what I do know is the church has always had to endure difficulty, and thus, rather than hope to avoid difficulty, hope to avoid dangers, hope to flee to safe spaces, I want to show you how to endure difficulty. I can't make your circumstances easier, but I can show you how to be tougher. I know we are in the trial right now, even at this church. And you know what? It won't be the last one. And it probably won't be the most difficult one we've ever been through. So I want you to have the tools necessary to endure in any trial. 
the only way I know to do that is to teach you what is in the Bible and to give you the structure by which you can succeed in any environment. And with that, I would ask you to open to Psalm 27. That will be our passage tonight. Psalm 27, written by David. It says this, of David, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. And though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in this shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. And my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for the false witnesses have arisen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we are here tonight. I thank you that you have brought us here to learn about you. Lord, I thank you for who you are. May we take just a moment here in our life. May we take that moment and just yearn to dwell in your house. Learn to seek and look upon your beauty. May we see that tonight. May you bless these people as they hear God's word. In your son's name, amen. So Psalm 27 shows us how we can exist in peace while in a dangerous world. David certainly exists in a world where he seemed in constant danger. If you look at verse 2 and 3 and then even verse 12, you kind of get a picture of what's going on. There's a formidable, formidable situation occurring. The first scene seems to be as though seemingly close people to him are trying to destroy him. His enemies are seeking to get close enough to David to attack him. This most likely is referring to the continual power struggle that a king would have because people would be trying to attempt to dethrone him, to take him off the throne, to seize power in some way. They not only wanted to attack him, but figuratively they wanted to eat his flesh. And so we know what that means is going to be they're going to try and slander him so that they can subvert him. They wanted to bring him to ruin by assassinating his character. But do not be fooled. 
Just like when David had to flee for his life when Absalom took over the throne, when a king is taken off of his throne, it is not a peaceful transfer of power. It usually requires the king's head and then every male or every family member that he has. It prevents a real physical danger to him. And in the midst of that, what you also see is a second scene in verse 3. It's a battle scene. He's surrounded by his enemy, and there appears to be no way of escape. Seemingly outgunned, outmanned, and being attacked in every direction, David sets the scene for us. But David's going to play his hand early. You see, in verse 1, what does he say? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Very early on, he's going to show that the secret to his success, the secret to him going through this, is going to be God. God is our one constant. God is our unchangeable foundation in this world. When everything else fails us, God is still there because everything else can be taken from us. We cannot have confidence in anything else. We can lose our job. We can lose our spouse. We can lose our children. We can lose our job. We can lose our physical abilities. We can lose our mental abilities. There is not one thing in this life that you've been given that cannot be taken away from you. Since everything in our life can be torn down, nothing in our life is safe except God. God is our rock and our constant that can never be torn down. And thus he is dependable. And so what we have here in Psalm 27 becomes David's blueprint in how to find safety, hope, and joy in a dangerous world. We're going to see this through a couple of ways. Number one, we're going to see this in confidence in God's character. Number two, we're going to see this as being focused in God's presence. Number three, finding fulfillment in our Heavenly Father. Verses 1 through 3, again. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army camp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Verses 1 through 3 stand as a testament to God's faithful character in the past. This language starts in the past. It is as if though David is recalling past examples of what he's facing now. No doubt David was involved in many different conflicts and many different wars and probably many different attempts to subvert, subvert his authority. And God had brought him through all of them. God's character then becomes the reason. Why? Because David has confidence in God's character from the past and understands that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so it is not blind faith that he is confident in God, but rather it's because God has been consistently faithful to him in the past. So again, it is not David's character that he depends on. David depends on God's character because God has been faithful to him. We see in verses 1 through 3, three of those characteristics. Number one, God is light. So this term can be a bit ambiguous. In fact, um, it's not really said a lot in the Old Testament that God is light. But we do understand what this can mean by also looking at the New Testament. Right? 
In John 1, 9, God is the light that shines in the darkness of the world's evil. Go to 1 John 1, 5, 7. This is even more direct to us. 1 John 1, 5 through 7. This is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you. What? That God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus. His son cleanses us from all sin. God's light pierces the darkness and shines forth. Darkness cannot exist where light is. The simple presence of light negates darkness. The simple presence of God negates darkness. God is our light. God's light is also something that leads us in the direction of our life. When Moses was in the wilderness, what led Israel at night was what? A cloud of fire, a cloud of light. Psalmist, thy word have I, I'm sorry, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It gives us direction. It gives us direction. This term can also be used to give spiritual illumination. It's also used of hope, purity, life. Basically, God is the opposite of everything that is wrong in this world. Since all of those things are a result of the curse of sin. God gives our lives direction. God gives our lives hope. God gives our lives joy and meaning and value in a dark world. And since it comes from God, it can never be taken away by man because it's God's. Next, what does he say? God is my salvation. In the Old Testament setting, salvation would have had the meaning of preservation or deliverance from danger. However, I think David also had a greater meaning in mind. He knew the Davidic covenant. He may have not known the specifics, but he did trust that God had a promise for him and that God would fulfill that promise. The Davidic covenant says that God promised David's throne would be forever. And David knew God would keep his promise. You see, if God allowed David to be killed and thus all of his male heirs to be killed, there would be no Davidic line. So David knew God would preserve. God would preserve. We also have a salvation, don't we? A salvation that we have in Christ. God is our salvation in a very real way. He died on the cross for our salvation. And so God is our salvation from sin and death. Lastly, it says, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Our safety isn't found in a place on a map, but rather it is found in the person of God. This current cursed earth is not our home, and thus we have to have the full vision of God's plan. We have a glimpse right here of the 70, 80, 100, whatever years of our life on this earth. That's, that's just a glimpse of what our whole life is going to be. 
Our safety isn't found in a destination. Our safety isn't found in a place. It is found in a relationship. That's what David means. God is my stronghold. God is my refuge. God is where I go when I want to be protected. Our safety is found in knowing we are in a close relationship with God. Because that means no matter what happens here on earth, our future is safe and assured in the hands of God. And because God is our stronghold, our safe place is now accessible everywhere we go because God is everywhere. You see, for most people, they need a safe place that they can get to. Our safe place comes to us because God is with us. And so no matter where we are, we have a safe place. But our safety is not from physical danger here on earth. Our safety is the fact that God will hold us and he will hold us through whatever trial we need to go through until we get through the trial. And if that trial takes our life, all it does is take us into eternity, into our eternal reward. The worst that any trial can do to us is the best any trial can do to us. You see, the difference is that the world has this problem. Their problem is that they've redefined what losing looks like. They've redefined what it looks like to lose, and that's what true safety is. They think if we die, we lose. And they spend a lot of time and effort and money trying to prolong life and delay death, and they think they are winning when they do that. So for us to purposely put ourselves in harm's way over something as seemingly trivial to them as some religion... That's reckless living. That's incomprehensible. How many times did we have to to fight whether or not what we were doing and worshiping, was that something that was essential in our society? Many people view that it is not. And yet we know it's really the only thing that is. You know, they thought the same of Jesus. They wanted an earthly king They wanted him to deliver them from the earthly Roman Empire. And so they started following him. And when when Jesus didn't do this, they turned on him and they put him on a cross. They looked up at Jesus on a cross and they saw a loser. They saw a man who had failed to deliver on what he said. And so they mocked him and they scorned him and they laughed at him. But what they didn't see, because they had carnal eyes, was a God-man who was conquering sin and death. They didn't see that Jesus, in being obedient, even to death on a cross, was him winning. You see, they see him and they look say, what a loser. We see him on the cross and we are so thankful because we know what it means. We know what it truly means for Jesus to hang there. They only saw Jesus on Friday, the loser who's dying. They didn't realize Sunday was coming. They didn't realize when Jesus said, you tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days, that that meant Sunday was coming, but Jesus told them, didn't he? Jesus told them he was coming, and they didn't know what that meant. And so the world has redefined what losing is. The world has redefined what safety is. And we're tempted to take on those definitions, but I'm here to tell you, do not. Redefine it in your own eyes. Redefine it in your own mind. 
The world sees us and many times they don't understand how we are succeeding. They see a people that would meet during a pandemic and possibly die from it and they see people who they feel are losing. They don't realize that our stronghold is a relationship and not a place on a map. Our safety is found in our faithful obedience to God and not in avoiding the dangers of this world. Worshiping God and preaching the gospel is worth the risk of catching a virus that has an overall fatality rate of less than 2%. And that's just the cases we know of. The infection fatality rate is much lower, less than 1%. The gospel is worth that risk because our safety is not found in avoiding something because we could die, but rather our safety is found in knowing our eternity after we do die. And remember, we will die. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. So you're wasting your time trying to avoid death when you should be redeeming the time following Christ. So when we look back at the character of God in the past and we realize that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we can have confidence that God will stay faithful to his promises and bring us through the trial in a manner where we are more than conquerors. Because death isn't losing. Death is a doorway to our victory. And we have to believe that. The next thing that David goes into is in verses 4 through 6. And that's being focused on being in God's presence. Focused on being in God's presence. He says, one thing that I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Focused on being in God's presence, oftentimes when we find ourselves in the midst of a trial, we are seemingly getting hit from every angle. We tend to lose focus on the thing that is truly important. What we have here, go back to verses 1 through 3 and try to imagine this again. All right, so this is a psalm. It's a song. It, he, he, you know, this is kind of an artistic expression. So think about what he's picturing things here. You have a war. You have things embattled against him. The enemy is surrounding him. Chaos is ensuing so much, though, that maybe even his commanders don't understand how he's going to get out of this, and they start talking to each other. The people start rebelling against him. They start slandering him. David's not really God's appointed. This is just a lie. We're going to all die here. So they start talking amongst each other. They start maybe figuring out a way to get him off his throne so that they can take over and do something different. David looks around at the war raging. He sees the enemies outside. He hears the attacks inside. And then this time where he's tempted to just have chaos ensue in his own life, allow the chaos from what's going on out here to come into his own heart and mind, what does he do? He stops. He pauses. He takes a breath almost. 
says this, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He focuses and he centers himself on what truly is important, and that is God. That is being in the house of the Lord, being close to God. Even in the face of trials and real threat of death, David's one desire, his preeminent desire, is not safety. He doesn't say one thing that I desire, that all this would be over, and that I would be back in my room safe. It's not safety. It's focusing on the beauty of God. Seeking after the face is a way you say you seek to be close with God. You seek to follow God. David knew that all of life can be simplified to this one thing, and that is seeking after God and focusing on his beauty. The New Testament reiterates this. I don't have time to turn to each one, but in his commentary, Golden Gate says this. One thing, says the psalm. One thing I do, says Paul in Philippians 3. You lack one thing, says Jesus to a rich man in Mark 10. Only one thing is needed, says Jesus to Martha in Luke 10. I know one thing, says the blind man whom Jesus had healed in John 9. These declarations about one thing vary, but all recognize that there are moments when you have to focus. We are in a moment where we have to focus. Many times we are too consumed with the things that we cannot control rather than being consumed with the most important thing that we can control, and that is seeking after the face of God. So I would encourage you, when the chaos of life surrounds you, and you are being hit from all directions, take a moment. Take a breath. When it seems like life is getting out of control, stop for a second and focus on God. Focus on what's truly important in life. Don't just remember God in some way that God is there. Remember his beauty. Remember his past promises. Jesus reiterated this. Do turn to Matthew chapter 6. Very common, very, very familiar phrase or verse that we have. And talking about, he's, he's like, what do you have to worry about? God gives food to the birds. God clothes the flowers of the field. What is it that you want? What are, what are these things? You don't think God can do this? He says in verse 30, so verse 33, he says this, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, you jump back up to verse 32, and he compares where he says, The Gentiles eagerly seek all the things that we're talking about, all these things, food, clothing, safety, money. No. He says, don't be like them. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. 
God knows the trouble of your life. He's sovereign. He's omniscient. He knows what's going on. God knows the needs of your life. Our job is to seek after God and trust he will provide those needs. Believe it or not, God knows that COVID is out there. God knows exactly what the virus is. He created it. I don't care if you want to believe a lab leak theory or a bat theory or a pangolin theory. I'll tell you who created the virus, and that was God. And he knows about it. And he knows exactly what it's going to do and how many people it's going to kill. And he says, I know that. That's not for you to worry about. You know what you need to worry about? Seeking first the kingdom of God. God knows church buildings are burning down. God knows people hate Christians. He said that way back 2,000 years ago. They're going to hate you. And guess what? They do. God knows. He says, don't worry about that. Seek first the kingdom of God. God knows we are becoming hated more and more. And God knows your personal struggles. Take a minute and just think about the personal struggles you have right now that are personal to you. Maybe it's your job or your marriage or your children or your friends or sickness or pain. What are the personal struggles you're going through right now? God knows them. God knows where he has you. And God says, you know what? Whatever you are in right now, seek my kingdom. Seek me first. Let me work the things out in your life. The call is to take the next step of faithfulness while trusting God is guiding your path. Remember, God is light. Light is a guide. We don't know what the future holds, but we do know what God expects from us regardless of what the future holds. I don't know what the future holds, but I know what God's will for your life is, and that is to seek first the kingdom of God. God knows our need and still calls us to seek his face and be satisfied in him, and then he will supply us with everything we need. Whatever circumstances you are in right now, God has placed you there for a specific reason. Think of those circumstances I just told you to think about, and I want you to think that God has placed you there for the specific purpose of saying, I have you here, how are you going to seek after me? How are you going to glorify me in this moment? So the question is not, why has this happened to me? The question should be, how do I glorify God in this moment? Whatever circumstances you're in, how do I glorify God right now? When life seems to come at you from all directions, take a moment, focus on God, see his beauty, be encouraged with his past promises, and go, okay, how do I glorify God right now? Is your desire, is the desire of your heart to be with God? For David, this place was a tabernacle. It wasn't Solomon's temple. This was a tent. But God was there and being worshipped there, and thus David wanted to be there. Do you desire to be where God is being worshipped? Now, David knew about personal worship. In Psalm 139, David knew that God was everywhere. Where can I go to get away from you? And the answer was nowhere. 
God is everywhere, and so we can worship God wherever we are. But if it's, but he wanted to be in the temple because he knew that's where other people were too. So he wants to worship God wherever he is, but if he can be, he wants to be in the temple of God too. So my question is, do you want to be where God is being worshipped? When the body of Christ is represented in the local church, when that place meets, do you want to worship there? Again, the world thinks we're losing because Christianity is becoming more hated. They see churches being burned down. They see churches being locked up and chained so you can't get in. And they think we're losing. Ha, you can't worship. Ha, it's going to stop you. They don't see that the place God has worshipped is not in a building, but rather in our hearts. So we can go anywhere and we can gather in any conditions and worship God. We can have church anywhere. We don't need a building. They burn down this building tomorrow. I'll see you Sunday. We'll find a place. We got a field. We got homes. We'll find a place. They don't understand that they cannot burn down God's true church because Matthew 16, 18 says that that church is being built by Jesus and the gates of sin and death cannot prevail against it. In fact, they don't even know that they're the ones that are on defense because it says the gates of hell. The gates of hell are a defensive weapon, not an offensive weapon. Jesus has already busted through all of their defensive. That's why the gates of hell won't prevail. And that's why we're the ones that are actually charging in. Their city's the one that's about to be overrun, not ours. But they don't even know that. The church is the one that is charging ahead. The church is the one that is infiltrating, busting through the gates, and going into the world, preaching the gospel and making disciples. We don't retreat. We attack. We're not attacking with swords. We're not attacking with guns or cannons or whatever have you. We go with the gospel. Those are our weapons. We go with the Bible. And we tell people. And in fact, that's why David can sing praises to God. That's why David can shout in the midst of chaos to God. He can shout in praise to God because he knows he's going to win. We can shout in praise to God because we know we're going to win because the place that we want to be in comes with us. And that is to be focused on God. The one thing, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Thirdly, we find our fulfillment in our Heavenly Father, verses, uh, verses 7 through 12. There's a definitive change here. It goes from this great mood of confidence to this great prayer. It says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. And my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not. O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me. But the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord. And lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have arisen against me. And they breathe out violence. The mood in these verses changes from a confident declaration to a heartfelt plea. It's like the expression from the centurion, I believe, help my unbelief. 
many times we have confidence in God and yet our, car, our heart cries out in the midst of trouble for God to help us. And that's okay. We, God wants to hear us cry out to him. David makes a very interesting statement in verse 10 that I think kind of shows what the rest of the section uh, hinges. It's not clear to what he is specifically alluding to, but he does say, for my father and my mother have left me. Now, we're not sure that Jesse, his father, actually left him, but what we do know is that all parents will leave their children either of their own volition or through death. The point is, nothing in this life is guaranteed to be with you. Many here tonight don't have their parents with them. Maybe their parents have left because of a falling out relationship. Maybe parents have left uh, through death. But the point that's being made is the most intimate of relationships, that between a parent and a child, will fail, either through their own volition, or through death. And yet the only thing that doesn't fail is God. You see, you have this picture here of almost total abandonment. Everyone's gone. Every close relationship with me is not around anymore. Don't leave me too, God. Don't leave me. And he says that with the confidence knowing God won't leave him. David goes on to show that the things that many others will seek to find in earthly relationships that fail, David instead seeks these in a relationship with God. So, go back up to verse 7. It says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says, Your face, Lord, I do seek. So hide not your face from me. David goes on to show the first thing is listening. And these all are basic needs that we need from our parents, that we need from close people. The first, again, like I said, is listening. Listening is a very basic thing, but it's something that's so important. In fact, one of the reasons children talk a lot is because they see the communication between adults and they want to get on the conversation because they want to feel like they have something to contribute. They want to feel that they have something of value to say, that something inside of them is valuable, and so thus the things that they say are valuable. In fact, if you keep talking and no one listens to you, you feel like you have nothing valuable to say, and if it continues, you may even feel like you have no value in and of yourself. Listening is very important. Listening to people when they talk to you is important. Yet God never ignores us. We have someone who always will listen to us. God listens to us. Our easiest communication is always with God because it can be done in any situation. God even knows that we are trying to say even when we don't. And so God listens to us. And then we find our worth in God, the creator of the universe. Not just a man, not just a person. Why are we finding our, our value in people? What are they worth? How about we find our value in God, who's worth more than anything? Next is acceptance. Verse 9. 
Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. To turn your face from someone is to reject them. So he's saying, do not reject me. And yet we know because we are in Christ, we are accepted by God. Go to Colossians 3. We are valued by God. Colossians 3, starting verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Right? Christ is seated at the right hand of God in a place of prominence. So not just acceptance, but prominence. And then he says, set your mind on these things above, not on the things on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with who? With Christ in God. So when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then also you also will be revealed with him in glory. Oh, we're accepted. We're accepted not because of who we are, but because of Christ. Because when God sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ on us. We are accepted. God accepts us as we are and loves us maximally and perfectly at this time because we have the righteousness of Christ put on us. And so we're accepted. And so we can find our acceptance in God, not in man. Because if you find your acceptance in man, then that can be used as leverage to manipulate you. As soon as you become a man pleaser, what happens? People use that in order to get you to do things for them or else they'll take away their acceptance from you. But not God. God saved us when we were wretches. God died for us, not when we were good, but when we were sinners. Verse 11, guidance. Back to Psalm 27, verse 11. Guidance. Guidance is something we all need. If we have no guidance, we have no purpose. If we have no purpose... What are we doing? We wander aimlessly. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. No one wants to walk through this life aimlessly without purpose. But you know what? God made us with a design. He made humans with a purpose, and that is to glorify him. He made us in his image, and we're to reflect that image. God has a purpose. God has a design. And the desire of our designer is that we glorify him. But how do we do that? Well, God could have left us here aimlessly, but he didn't, did he? What did he give us? He gave us the word of God. He gave us the Bible. He gave us his word to show us how to fulfill that purpose. He further gave us the Holy Spirit to guide us. God has given us a purpose and a path for our life. Our job is to follow it. And finally, he gave us protection. Protection is important. Protection in all realms is important. God is our stronghold. We talked about this. But our stronghold is not a stronghold that we would typically think of. It's not a safe space. God is our stronghold because of what his promises are. And he's going to hold to those promises. And no one can take them away. So we can rest on that. We can rest on the promises of God. We can rest on the character of God. 
You see, if we learn to find our basic needs in our relationship with God and not with man, then we will never be abandoned or betrayed. The problem comes in that too many times we seek to find our ultimate satisfaction in our earthly relationships that are guaranteed to abandon or betray us. The thing that we find our ultimate desire or satisfaction in is essentially our God. So who is your God? Where do you find your satisfaction? Where do you find your comfort? Where is your desire? God is placing us in circumstances that are difficult, so we learn to be satisfied in him no matter what. This is why James can say in James 1.3, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. That's why we consider it joy. Because we can have joy in these circumstances because we learn how to glorify God. We learn how to find our satisfaction in God. God is in the habit of destroying idols. And he's going to destroy the idols of our life. And he knows the idols of our life. And so he's going to bring circumstances into our life to make sure those idols get knocked over. That's why we can have joy. In your life, you have to consider where you find your ultimate satisfaction. Can you be satisfied in having a relationship with God if you never get married? Can you ever be satisfied with God if you never have children? Can you be satisfied with God if you get sick, even with COVID? Can you be satisfied with God if you lose your physical abilities? How about if you, you lose your family? What if you never achieve wealth? What if you have to live every day in pain? What if you have no building to worship in and have to worship next to a burned down church? What if you're thrown away in prison and forgotten about? Will you still find your satisfaction in God? If you can't say that, then that's where we start. Be satisfied in God. Be satisfied where God has you. So there's the secret. This is how you find your safety. This is how you find your hope. This is how you find your joy. Because when you're satisfied in nothing else but God, then you have something no one can take away from you. And when you're satisfied in nothing else but God, then you only care about what God thinks about your life and not man. When you are satisfied in nothing else but God, you realize that earthly success is never esteemed by God, but rather what is esteemed is what you do for his kingdom. When you do those things, then you have the reward of verse 13 and 14. Psalm 27, 13 and 14 says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. If we learn to have confidence in God's character, if we learn to focus on being in God's presence, and if we learn to find our fulfillment in our Heavenly Father, then David says confidently that we will see the goodness of God. Isn't that what we want? Don't we want to see the goodness of God? When you seek the face of God, you will find His goodness. Why? Because God is the definition of good. And so when you seek God's face, you're going to see goodness. We see so much evil and darkness in this world. We see so much chaos surrounding us. Sometimes it can swallow us up. Sometimes it can 
It can make us stumble, make us want to just curl up and not do anything. But David wants us to see the goodness of God. And so he says, seek his face. He says, wait for God. Be patient, be steadfast, holding on to your joy and hope. And your patience will be rewarded. We know our position in heaven is guaranteed. We know our reward in heaven is guaranteed. We know our inheritance in heaven is guaranteed. But we must wait until heaven to get it. Until then, what do we do? We confidently wait on God's timing in our life to bring about all the things we need in order to glorify him. And so, with confidence in God's character, with a focus on being in God's presence, and with our fulfillment in our Heavenly Father, we, we move forward in dangerous times. We seek to be faithful over seeking safety. We seek obedience before avoidance. Too many people want to be safe in this life like they want to go to heaven pretty. The Apostle Paul didn't go to heaven pretty. He went with the marks of the gospel all over him, didn't he? All over his back, all over his face. Are we looking to go to heaven pretty? Are we looking to go to heaven faithful? What I say to you in this time is what David says. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you that you are a beautiful God. we thankful that you are a God who is a stronghold for us, a place of refuge. Lord, the world is in chaos. The world is seemingly trying to panic again. Lord, may you protect your people. May you protect them, protect their hearts, protect their hearts from being afraid and instead seek you. Give them courage. Help them to wait for you. Help them to be steadfast, Lord. May we continue advancing with the gospel. We are not retreating now. We are not retreating ever. May we go forward and learn to glorify you. In your son's name, amen.